I am Steve Morgan, founder of Cybersecurity Ventures and editor-in-chief at Cybercrime Magazine. I'm here today with Gordon Lawson, CEO at Conceal, provider of an intelligence grade zero trust technology that protects global companies of all sizes from malware and ransomware. To learn more about our sponsor Conceal, visit conceal.io. Also joining us is Tom Dowdy, former VP and CISO at Prudential Financial and former Captain Military Intelligence at the U.S. Army. Welcome, Mark and Tom. Great to have you both with us. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the discussion. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. So, Tom, given your background, I want to kick off here by asking you about ex-military people. They bring such exceptional uh, cyber talent to our industry. Some of the uh, top CISOs uh, we've met, we've interviewed many practitioners come from the military. Tell us, what is it, in your opinion, that they bring that's different? I think it could be a few different attributes, but one way I like to think of it is uh, kind of the mantra of fighting the enemy and fighting the situation and not fighting your own plan. So the idea of being in a real-time situation, having fluid situations, having factors that come into decision-making change and you have to trim the sails is something that a lot of military leaders become comfortable with pretty quickly, or if they don't, they find a way to become comfortable with that pretty quickly. So you know, maybe it's the idea of, you know, voice another way that a lot of military people get trained in the idea that the 80 or 90% solution aggressively executed on time is far preferable to the elusive, perfectly planned operation executed too late. Gordon, you come out of the U.S. Naval Academy and you talk to so many security leaders. In, in your opinion, what extra does that military experience bring? Well, first off, uh, it was very uh, kind of Tom to join as a West Point grad with a Navy grad today. So uh, it's, a, it's a joint effort. You know, I, I think Tom hit the nail on the head. It re really is about execution. And I think that um, in cyber, we're dealing with a, a very dynamic, evolving threat. Certainly on the vendor side, we have to make sure that we're staying ahead of that. And I think that, um, that, that you know, that, that's been supporting our customers well. But we have lots of veterans in at, at conceal and and we just feel like that defaulting to action is 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 critical but also it, there's the critical thinking aspect of you gotta you can't move too fast uh, you got to make sure that you're you're covering your bases and that you know when it, whether it comes to product or any of those other aspects within a company that you're you're executing well and making sure that you're delivering um, a great outcome for our clients so Tom Gordon and I have had uh, large enterprise CISOs on with us and other thought leaders in the past year, and there are two big picture themes that uh, keep emerging, and we, we talk about a lot, but, but those two would be ransomware and AI, and I want to ask you about both of those today. We'll start with ransomware. When we first sized the market, this is a decade ago, so about 10 years ago, the global damages were roughly $325 million, and we thought that was a very big number at the time. But we're in a place now where we're looking at about $40 billion in damages uh, next year annually. You've been in the industry for a long time. You, you've seen uh, a lot of cyber attacks. What's your take on the ransomware threat? And, you know, 10 years ago, uh, when you were in the thick of it, could you have imagined that it would be this big? Perhaps, probably not numerically that big if we look back 10 years ago and would we spin the clock forward and, and put that kind of tag on it. But I think it's also important to start with the idea that you know, I, people think of ransomware as a threat family, and in a way it is, but it's it's not fundamentally different in terms of what we do on the left side of the kill chain, or they want to think of it in terms of, you know, prevent and detect. Respond certainly differently, recover certainly differently. I like to describe to people sometimes, you know, ransomware is not necessarily, for instance, 
grossly different in terms of threat methodologies or basic blocking and tackling in threat and vulnerability management. Rather, it's a, a ransom scheme or impact is something that a, a successful attacker can do once they get a foothold in an environment and get control of certain attributes or systems. So you'll see, you know, the if we want to think of traditional ransomware now as holding up operations or locking up data for ransom, we increasingly see data that's already been exfiltrated, data theft for ransom, in other words, extracting the ransom for returning it, not uh, further disclosing the information, et cetera. But I, I do think there is some light at the end of the tunnel for a handful of reasons. First of all, threat intelligence continues to try to advance and keep up with the threat actors. The means by which ransomware enters an environment, going back to my earlier point, not necessarily being unique to ransomware schemes, advances in our detective capability and our response capability, including driven by AI and analytics on the, the security front, on the good guy front, so to speak, continue to help us in that what is an arms race, but continue to help us. And I do think, well, on a non-technical sense, this might be overly hopeful. In some ways, um, you know, the, the efficacy of ransomware actions has weaned. In, in some cases, I think many organizations, many enterprises are better able to anticipate it, respond to it, have planned for it, have done their tabletop exercise, have gone through rights of decision in their incident response planning. Uh, I think that, you know, we've seen some instances where the threat actors, some of whom have an organized business model to try to uphold, have seen some dings to that business model where, let's take a very public example, like Colonial Pipeline, where ransom was paid and the effectiveness of the decryption utility that was purchased for that ransom was not wholly effective. That impacts the calculus of organizations when deciding to even consider paying or not. And I also think that while crypto payments are still largely difficult to trace, there will continue to become increasingly traceable or less anonymous, which uh, makes things not as attribution-free for some of the threat actors as well. So it's an arms race, but yes, there is light at the end of the tunnel with all those things combined and considered. So Gordon, you're dug into this fight day in and day out with your team at Conceal. You talk to a lot of CSOs, a lot of security leaders. Just how well equipped or, or not equipped are large enterprises, mid-market companies uh, insofar as ransomware goes? And, and I guess that's a tough question, right? Because you, you ask somebody today, uh, before they've been attacked, you get one answer and you know post-attack, you might get another answer. But is it getting any better? Well, I think that there's certainly awareness. I, I was in Japan all last week, uh, Steve, and I thought, you know, this is the third largest economy in the world there. Uh, massive, massive companies, lots of budgets for cyber, but also I would say, you know, maybe behind uh, the U.S. in terms of just the, maybe not necessarily their core, like cybersecurity technologies, but with the just the sheer amount of tools available to them. Um, you know, a lot of that has to do with language localization, things like that. But they're, but bottom, bottom line is they're definitely under threat with what's going on in Asia. And it's, it's, it's a huge problem. But I think that they look at it in terms of if I have like the big brand name EDR that I'm done, I'm good. Clorox, Clorox had it. John's Controls had it. Uh, MGM and Caesars had it. And they still, they're, they're, they're just, there's just another layer of, of attack here that we're missing. And so I, I think that, you know, this is just a good analogy of that. You have to stay ahead of the way these vectors are looking. And I think that that has to do with threat intelligence. I think, you know, obviously from our side, there's there's a browser component of this and how your users are interacting and the credential theft piece of it as well. 
but I think that it's just such a daunting problem and you really have to look at it holistically and it can't be GDP dependent. Just because I have XX tool means I'm good. That's just simply not true anymore, no matter how, many res how, many, how much resource your company has. So um, it, it's tough and it just varies very widely um, in, by geography and obviously by, by size of industry. So Tom, for CISOs at companies who have not been the victim of ransomware, is it an inevitability is, you know, and insofar as uh, CISOs talking to CIOs and C-suite executives and even the, even the boardroom, uh, what type of expectations are they setting? You know, do, do organizations feel like they're sitting ducks and if they haven't been hit, they, they will be? Whether or not it is an inevitability, you have to be in the mindset of preparing for it as if it is. Right. So if you feel like you're a sitting duck, the question is, what are you prepared to do about it? So I think Gordon's absolutely right that going out and buying tools, yeah, you need telemetry and visibility in your environment, whether that be EDR or other, but that's only fuel for the effect of operational process and thought process in terms of how you're going to be effectively resilient and recover. So these are not just technical discussions. In terms of the C-suite discussions, the boardroom discussions, this is largely about gaming this out, you know, under what circumstances might this come to pass in an impactful way in different portions of your business at different times, different event-driven scenarios, and not have it just be a question of the CISO or the chief technical officer or the CIO talking about this. You want business practitioners thinking about their potential impacts. You need to partner with your general counsel function, your communications function, your compliance function, et cetera, and really go through so what are you going to do about a plan from a recovery response perspective, including rights of decision, your external linkages, et cetera. What you don't want happening is at the time this may come to pass, inevitable or not, that you're trying to figure out those linkages and figure out your rights of decision and how you're going to respond to recover what you need to recover first. So there are ties to BC and DR, obviously, but the thought process in that C-suite and that boardroom is something that it's incumbent upon a CISO to help inform and not just go out and buy tools and try to be resilient and detective about it in the first place. I think you know, Gordon hit that on the head. So Gordon, over the past couple of years, we've seen uh, many more advisories and alerts coming out of the FBI and CISA. You know Dave DeWalt, of course. Uh, he's on your board of directors and he's a committee member at CISA. How much is this helping our industry, businesses of all sizes, and in particular, you know, small to mid-sized businesses who don't have the type of resources that, you know, the large enterprises do with CISOs? I think Jenny Shalhoub has done a great job at CISA just getting out. You see her at every kind of major cyber trade show. Another West Point grad, right, Tom? I think she's, I think she's a military academy grad. So yeah, you know, I think she's been great about getting more engaged there. And, and, and that's really positive. You know, the difficult thing that as I talk to not just CISOs, but even CEOs, when you have the FBI component, is there still like this, I think, legal apprehension around discovery and at what point do you engage with law enforcement? I think that that's gotten a little bit better, but you know, at the end of the day, any CEO has a fiduciary responsibility to their company. And so you can't, you got to be really careful. You don't want to be getting embroiled in, in, in lawsuits. I feel like this solar winds thing does not help the situation at all, where a CISO is being held liable for something. The CISO has a, a, a no-win situation. You have to be right 100% of the time. And, and, and bringing criminal liability into play is, uh, makes that very, very difficult. I think it's going to make it very hesitant for folks to engage with uh, 
on the law enforcement side. But I think the overall, the with the you know CISA and the ISACs and 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 government being able to share threat intelligence, that's that's very positive. Um, but we got to be careful of maybe unintended consequences um, with the way government can sometimes interact and overreach too. So overall, thumbs up for for Jen. But uh, I, I'm I'm a little bit hesitant on some of the other law enforcement interactions. So Tom, to switch gears, uh, AI. Uh, this is coming up in every single conversation we're having with CISOs, and they're often bringing it up. I'd like to get your thoughts in particular. Do you think that AI is going to do more harm or more good? You know, on the one hand, you have, you know, cyber criminals who are weaponized with AI. On the other hand, uh, it holds out promise for cyber fighters. Uh, where do you see this near term and long term? I think it puts more energy on both sides of the threat versus protective and, and response equation, right? And, you know, particularly now being in my new role as CISO of a very AI-driven company at Generate Biomedicines, where AI is really part of the lifeblood of the company to engineer new proteins and new therapeutics on a very accelerated basis. Surely, if you look at it from a threat actor perspective, even if it's to make old attacks and old uh, negative appeals against human nature better, attackers are using it to great effect, even business email compromise, making them more plausible, which opens the door to other types of perceived attacks. For instance, AI through that business email compromise channel is a an increase in surface area effectiveness for ransomware to be introduced, going back to our earlier discussion. Now that said, AI is already a powerful tool in the cyber defender toolbox and will continue to be even more so as as the the skill set and the tools continue to advance. So where you draw the line between analytics and machine learning and what we would really call artificial intelligence, I think really doesn't matter. What matters is do you have telemetry in the places where you're finding anomalies in the environment, including AI to detect AI-driven attacks, and continue to advance the arms race. So is there light at the end of the tunnel? I don't know. I think it accelerates the arms race on both sides, so to speak. I would add, though, that I think there are some intersections involving AI that the the security community might be sleeping on a little bit. I could generalize and say that I think we as a community are sleeping a little bit on the intersection of AI and quantum computing, as an example. I think too many folks might be looking at being, quote unquote, quantum safe as simply an end-of-life exercise with old encryption algorithms and replace them with the new, ostensibly quantum-safe algorithms. And it's not quite so simple. So yeah, you don't need quantum power to be quantum-safe. But we've already seen side-channel attacks using AI, at least in academic environments, to defeat the new algorithms, at least on a one-to-one directed compute power theoretical basis. So I think the intersection of quantum and AI, should quantum become either widely or derivatively available to attackers, even if state-sponsored or derivative thereof in small numbers, but you know, high skill set, high power, if they want to direct that capability against specific targets, is going to shorten the timelines within which uh, quantum introduces new threats, including fueled in combination with AI. So Gordon, it's incredible how things change so quickly. It was only I don't even know if it was a year ago, maybe around a year ago, uh, you and I hosted a roundtable and we had several uh, CISO security leaders on with us talking about the quantum threat. And I remember this, this, this roundtable and AI did not come up in that conversation. So it's interesting, uh, you know, I'd like to hear you build on, you know, what Tom had to say and what you think of the quantum threat today. 
Well, I'm sitting here in Augusta, Georgia, right across the way is the Georgia Cyber Center where they have, you know, quantum capabilities to do some research here. So it's, it's a, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I think that there's so many unknowns right now. You know, this is something that still really is right now is in the realm of nation states and in the realm of academic institutions to have the capability to do this. So first off, there's a lot of unknowns. I think Tom said the nail on the head too. It's if, if you, if you, um, being, quantum safe is doesn't necessarily mean that you're resilient against the the uh, amalgamation of these attacks and so and i and i think just going back to maybe the ai piece the anomalies are where the really bad attacks are going to happen you have to be able to spot these anomalies the threat feeds aren't going to do it they're going to be behind you know normal normal edr signature signature based is not going to be able to do it they're going to look a little bit different and, and also the ability of, of the old ve vectors where, where you can basically, AI is basically supercharged open source intelligence, right? That's the way, that's the way it can be employed now. You can get, to get so much data about someone with very little input. And I think that if you can't train your folks to detect those anomalies and that something doesn't, it, this may feel really right, but it's still a little bit off, um, you just, you're just, just open, open to that. So... You know, AI and quantum combined just kind of make that make that even more difficult. But um, I think we're just going to have to continue to be vigilant. And and I you know, really think it's important that you have to look at those edge cases. The edge cases is where where companies are going to get compromised. So Tom, we have a lot of guests who come on with us, Fortune 500, Global 2000 CISOs, and that's a large part of our audience. But we get so many inquiries from small to mid-sized companies, and they're watching you know these interviews but they don't have CISOs, they don't have CIOs, they don't have IT staff in many cases. These are you know, some of the smallest companies in our country, yet they're faced with the same threat. And cyber attacks hit more than 50% of small businesses. So before you leave us today, uh, maybe to give back to the community any advice you have for these you know, smaller and mid-sized companies who don't have those resources. Yeah, and uh, you know, I have an interesting new perspective having retired from Prudential and that CISO role after 18 years in the CISO role of the Fortune 100 financial services where we could have 24-7, 365 in-house SOC capability with analytics and threat hunting and the, the right tool set that we thought we needed, et cetera. Clearly for a smaller enterprise that's developing and growing, doesn't scale like that. So as an example, at Generate Biomedicines here, we're a much smaller company. We're growing quickly. Had the, the largest C round in biotech in 2023, and we're putting the attention toward what capabilities do we need. And that's really the, the short answer to your question. We may not be able to do that all in-house, but we need to judiciously understand what are the decisive points in the range from, well, first, of course, identifying all your risks using the, the classical framework all the way through prevent and detect, et cetera. But you need the telemetry. You need probably a, an effective mix of services to help you recognize those, analyze the patterns, basically the operations function and security if you're not scaled to do it internally. But really, maybe it's go back to where we started the whole conversation. I love the format of the military five-paragraph operations order because it starts with what is the definition of the situation and then turns into mission next. Be objective-oriented, be outcome-oriented. So the best short advice I can give to smaller growing companies is please just don't go out and buy a couple of tools and buy an EDR and think you're done. Yeah, you need that telemetry, but think about 
what are the, the capabilities and outcomes from a visibility perspective. If you need some external service and variable resource to do that, think about prioritizing that on a do now, do next, do later, or in some cases, maybe do not at all basis. But uh, buy-in tools is easy. You're better off having telemetry and having a narrowly focused skill set to do something with those outputs on an objective-oriented basis than just fire and forget with tools. So, Gordon, I know you talk to so many large enterprises directly, but uh, I think I'm most impressed with what Conceal's doing around this, you know, army of MSSPs and partners. You have this ecosystem who's really equipped to go out and help these small to mid-sized businesses. It's one thing to just dispense advice or to have a great tool, but you need people who can help you. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I just, I think they're the backbone of, of the cybersecurity industry. Uh, you know, whether it's an MSP and there's different flavors of those or, you know, a more sophisticated MSSP MDR provider, they're all so critical and they can really, um, first off, you know, if you're a company that has, has never engaged with that sort of outsourced service, they can give you a baseline one, they can identify where, you know, vulnerabilities are, and then they provide that continuous monitoring at a fraction of the cost for you to be able to stand it up internally yourself. So it's important for us. We want to, we, we work with them well. We want to make sure that it's a, uh, a win-win that, you know, that our pricing is, allows them to, to make healthy margins and, and provide a great service. But I think the other piece just from our perspective is, and I think this is important for any cyber vendor is you got to integrate, have open APIs, integrate with other tools so that no matter what that organization has, whether this is MSP or the end customer, no matter what they have in their stack, we want to make sure they're seeing value and and, and talking and, and working well together. Um, but we're we love we love the MSP community and uh, excited to continue supporting them. Tom, again, you know, thank you so much for being with us, and I hope we could do this again next year. My pleasure. I look forward to it. Thanks. And Gordon, we have a standing date with uh, some impressive CISOs coming up. We we'll look forward to that with you. I'm Steve Morgan, founder of Cybersecurity Ventures and editor in chief at Cybercrime Magazine. This interview is sponsored by Conceal, provider of an intelligence grade zero trust technology that protects global companies of all sizes from malware and ransomware. To learn more, visit conceal.io. You can keep up with all of our media at cybercrimemagazine.com.